Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Popular home genetic tests could put your family's most personal information at risk. It's estimated more than 12 million Americans have sent their DNA to be analyzed by companies like 23andMe and Ancestry DNA. The data is sometimes shared with or sold to third parties for use in medical research. Both companies say that requires users to opt in. Law enforcement has used public DNA databases to identify criminal suspects like the alleged Golden State Killer. An editorial in today's New England Journal of Medicine calls for more oversight. It says, quote, our current regulatory approach to privacy in direct-to-consumer genealogic testing has permitted the creation of a Wild West environment. Paul Violis is a CBS News security consultant, an accomplished author, and a renowned global security and law enforcement expert. With over 35 years of experience, he's dedicated his life to finding solutions for the problems that keep you up at night. This is Security Matters with Paul Violis. Welcome to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violis, and this is a CBS News radio production. I want to tell everyone a big thank you for hitting us up on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Some great comments. Uh, You will see that a lot of the comments that came in on this particular subject have brought us to the point of doing the show today. A lot of great comments. And also for hitting me up uh, on Info at Violas. A lot of people seem to think that or they feel more comfortable writing emails, that's fine. You can email me too. Smoke signals, whatever works, is all good. Also appreciate your reviews. You can go to cbsaudio.com slash podcast and go to the Security Matters page and you can leave a review. So far, everything's been good. Ratings have come back great, so we're all happy. Everything's good on this end. Today, a very sobering subject, but yet a very a, a one that, that if, if you don't feel passionate about, I, I just, I don't know that you have passion in you. It's, it's a combination of science. It's a combination of history. It's a combination of biology. And it's a, it's a, it's a way that we are going to change the trajectory of how we investigate, how we solve, how we bring truth, and validity to the criminal justice system, and quite frankly, to a variety of other things. I'm talking about the use of DNA. Now, over 250,000 cold cases pending in the United States throughout our great police departments. 40% of homicides right now going unsolved. And, And the use of DNA has become an integral component in not just everyday investigations, but ladies and gentlemen, in the use of, or in the investigating of cold cases. Cold cases are those that so much of these affect families across the United States that we don't pay enough attention to. And they're cases that, quite frankly, whether it's by manpower, whether it's by lack of evidence during the course of the initial investigation, have gone cold. Doesn't mean they're dead. Police never give up. You have to understand that. But by the same token, there's only so many police around. So they go cold, and then there are different groups within police departments that work these cases. DNA has become a major component of how these cases are being investigated, how they're being solved. And solved just means basically coming to conclusion. DNA is also being used 
in many cases for those that have been wrongfully convicted. That's right, wrongfully convicted. People that have gone to prison for years or decades and later on have come to find out that they were right, they were innocent, and using DNA evidence as really the benchmark for that, that, of, of that evidentiary process. DNA, and, and, and we are going to have a great, great expert that's going to be joining us here momentarily. So I'm going to give you a very crude kind of Paul Violas-esque example of DNA, but it's a, it's a molecule. And for those of us that studied in biology, it's a long molecule that contains our unique genetic code. It's, our, it's sort of like this really crazy fingerprint about everything we are and everything we do. It's sort of like a recipe book that contains instructions for making all the proteins in our body. It's what sets us apart. Its uses, endless. For today's conversation, however, we're gonna be talking about how our law enforcement community is using DNA to reshape how we investigate crime. Now, understand that there is some great information out there, and you're gonna hear it today, but also, there's some misinformation. I get the whole kind of sensationalism, the sexy part about CSI and all the stuff on TV and movies and all that great stuff. But there is a twist to that, that what you see necessarily isn't the entire truth. And the, one of the reasons that I think kind of I would have to say the main impetus behind, behind today is to set the record straight. This is phenomenal technology. And, and the professionals... Uh, such as Francine Bardol, who's going to be joining us here shortly, who's going to share with you. It's a phenomenal arson piece of our arsenal. But by the same token, all of our listeners need to understand we have to have reasonable expectations. Unlike those shows that in 30 minutes we solve two homicides with two commercial breaks, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. There's a backlog of information. The reality of it is that professionals like Francine can't just look at something on the microscope and see the guy's name on it, send somebody the address, and you know, two or three minutes later, the police are arresting him. It doesn't necessarily go that, that way. But it is important for us to know the truth about how DNA is used. Francine is, is a crime scene investigator and a forensic specialist with the West Jordan City Police Department in West Jordan, Utah, from the great state of Utah. Through West Jordan PD, Francine has had the ability uh, to consult and assist law enforcement agencies around our great United States. Now, it's important for us to, to, to really recognize West, West Jordan PD before I bring Francine in here because it's, it's through that type of management from the chief down that they create an environment of collaboration by using someone whose expertise, like Francine, can help so many people. So kudos to the West Jordan City Police Department for supporting Francine and what she does in assisting police departments all over the country. Without further ado, Francine, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Paul. Francine, I want to just dive right into this subject, okay? So let's start out. Um, I typically like to benchmark things. Let's benchmark the subject, and if you would, please define what DNA actually is. Well, DNA is, like you were saying, Paul, it's like a recipe. Uh, I look at it like a blueprint of who you are, and your DNA is passed down from your ancestors uh, and to your mother and father. So basically, you'll get half your DNA from your mom and half from your father, and that's what makes us unique, and that's what tells us about us. Nobody will have the same DNA except for an identical twin, and they'll share the same DNA. But it's, it, tell, it gives us the characteristics and uniqueness about us. It's the blueprint of us. 
So is it fair to say, then, Francine, that no one has the same DNA? No one except for identical twins, and they can share the same DNA. They can. So does that make it difficult, then, during the course of an investigation? It could. However, I'm sure there's other uh, evidence they may have that can uh, probably help them, uh, depending on, you know, uh, witnesses, um, items that are left behind uh, that could be unique to that individual. Okay. Now, um, as, as a crime scene investigator, this is, this is a paramount as far as how this is collected, but how is DNA evidence actually collected and stored? Yeah, well, DNA can, is, is actually, uh, DNA resides in a skin cell, so those are pretty, those are pretty resilient. Uh, the skin cell is covered by a, a, a casing or a membrane, you can call it a shell, that protects it. And so it can last a long time under that protection. And so we look for evidence that would probably, you know, have some of that DNA embedded in it or on it. So when we go out to collect the scene, we try to find what's going to be the most probative because, you know, they could have touched a lot of things, but what's going to have the most DNA in it? And basically after we've collected that, um, we will bring it back. And uh, in, in my lab, what we do is um, I will collect the DNA from the item of evidence. Say it's a shirt. Uh, and somebody grabbed somebody and they, you know, uh, strangled them, killed them, but they had a hold of their shirt. And, you know, witnesses say, you know, um, they, he was wearing this shirt and we can see from the crime scene photo it's all messed up and, and you can see that it's been disarrayed on him. So we'll focus on that area and we'll use, uh, we, we don't use traditional methods of swabbing because we're looking for touch DNA. And so you can't see touch DNA. So we have to look and make a determination as to where is the best area to focus our efforts. And I use what is called the MVAC. It's a, a wet vacuum that uh, I apply a solution on that um, will be sucked up into a collection bottle. In that collection bottle are floating these skin cells that I told you that are pretty resilient. And uh, then after I've done that, I'll pour it through a filter, and the filter will hold on to those skin cells until I'm finished, and I dry out the filter, and then I send that filter uh, to a lab to uh, have the DNA um, extracted and uh, analyzed. So uh, collecting DNA can also be done through swabbing. Uh, most lab state laboratories and laboratories will do swabbing because they don't have um, some of the up-to-date uh, techniques or, or uh, machinery, and so they'll continue with the uh, swabbing method that just gets basically the topical, the top part of something, yet DNA can embed into a fabric, a wood, uh, porous items, you know, such as that. So in collecting it, uh, we focus more on the touch DNA, and that seems to be really kind of a big one. If, if, if it's blood or something like that, that's easy to swab up. Now, um, while we're on this subject, which is absolutely fascinating, Francine, you mentioned your lab. What, what kind of equipment is in that lab? Well, it's very simple. It's a police agency lab, and it's an area where I uh, have uh, just very simple tools. It is not a certified lab like you would have for a state lab or a private lab. This is a lab that any police agency can set up. Uh, I have got uh, microscopes. I have got uh, ultraviolet light um, for sterilization. I've got uh, the MVAC. I have uh, I have different things that most simple labs have, like a vortex machine. Um, I've got uh, lighting that I need. 
I have a laser light so I can look for biology, uh, biological fluids on the sample. So it's fairly simple. Okay. So, and that differs from the lab now that you're going to collect this evidence because it's evidence. So you have chain of custody, right? You have to be very, very careful about how that's handled, how it's transported. And now you send it to a state lab or a private lab. What happens there? Well, you bring up an interesting subject for most police officers and people trying to get evidence done. Um, state labs, um, I will send stuff too, but they don't develop uh, the filter that I use. And so I send all my stuff to uh, a private lab. A state lab um, tends to not always have the uh, updated um, techniques and methods uh, because they're run by the government and they only can get what they can get and they don't have enough people sometimes. I'm not saying all of them, but a good share sure. of them. And so I take, and, and like a lot of law enforcement agencies, we've been taking our stuff to a private lab, um, not only for the technology that they may not have, but also the turnaround time at a private lab is much less. We're looking at a few weeks opposed to several months. Wow. So we want to get the, we get the uh, perpetrator off the streets, uh, or we want to try to find you know, who killed somebody, and we, we don't want to draw it out. Don't forget, DNA degrades over time. And so a lot of these cold cases... We want to work on and as fast as we can so that we don't lose any more DNA. Interesting. Now, I understand while we're on the subject of labs that there's a significant backlog in entering of DNA. Why is that? Well, there's several reasons. One is that uh, touch DNA has really come into focus, and it's basically DNA has been the gold standard for a while. That's like, you know, this is what we're going to use to identify someone. And so touch DNA has become um, something that a lot of law enforcement and people are looking at. So uh, when you have touch DNA, and say if you're using traditional methods like a lot of them do, can you imagine, um, say, taking um, some bedding and swabbing that entire comforter or a jacket or a shirt or a pair of pants, swabbing that is time-consuming, um, and so they're going to have to be really careful about what they'll accept at the lab. So they put, uh, they put uh, uh, kind of a restriction on how many items, takes them a long time. Uh, the backlog has become huge because departments are wanting DNA. They want to find out. They want to solve cases, and they want to get the best DNA they can. One of the most common things that are happening right now in a lot of labs is you'll process something for DNA, and uh, they'll, you'll get a mixture or an inconclusive. Basically, you don't have anything from their standpoint. Um, and so there are a lot of uh, private labs, and some state labs have this now uh, 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 software that is uh, probabilistic genotyping that can unmix uh, mixtures and get rid of those uh, mixtures or inconclusives and, and go below thresholds and get more DNA. So there's a lot of science to this, and it's gotten better, and therefore there's a bigger demand. And, and don't forget, also, there was a big push throughout the United States on the sexual assault kits. And so right. what's happened is all these sexual assault kits from, you know, the uh, 80s and up, uh, they have inundated the lab, and the state labs are inundated, and a lot of them are outsourcing um, their uh, work to private labs because they're so backlogged. You know what? You mentioned private labs, and also, Francine, you had introduced me to uh, Kara Porter from the Utah Cold Case Coalition. 
which is an example of a non-for-profit private lab, are they not? Yeah, they're, they are uh, in the process of um, opening a private forensic lab in Utah, and it will be open around the end of the first of the year. And this lab is a nonprofit specifically working cold cases for law enforcement around the country. They want to try to help them so that they can get cold cases solved using the best technology and experts and not cost so much because private labs are very, very expensive, and that's why we go to state labs is is we don't have to pay this big expense. When you're going to a private lab, the demand is high. They can ask more money. You know what, um, and Francine, thanks to you, uh, I did have a great conversation with Kara Porter, and, and again, thanks to you, we are going to be featuring uh, the Utah Cold Case Coalition in August to, to, to really recognize Cold Case Month in August, and, and we'll learn, so for everybody listening, you're going to learn a lot more about this particular subject and that great organization that Francine introduced us to. Francine, another question, uh, of late, while we're on the DNA subject, of late, there's this, all this talk in the news, and I've heard a lot here on CBS News Radio and, and other than CBS TV as well, uh, about the whole 23andMe and companies like that and the hazard of companies storing DNA evidence. W- what do you say about that? Okay, um, so I'm assuming we're talking uh, DNA and databases through Ancestry, 23andMe, right. and they have these databases. The big one is probably GEDmatch. Um, and that's how they caught the Golden State Killer and several others. And there is a lot of concern, and uh, a lot of people um, don't want their DNA to be checked against uh, evidence and, and other DNA samples. They don't, they don't want that. They want the privacy. But I see that slipping as time has gone on because I've been involved in, in a lot of um, groups and committees where we've talked about that. I've even reached out. I know at one time the ACLU was really strong on, on this subject, and they didn't seem to be as strong when I reached out to find out, you know, as far as their stand on uh, the collection of uh, DNA evidence uh, from sexual assault cases from the standpoint of consensual partners uh, being put in a database and they're unaware that they're in there. And so there's just a lot of controversy when it comes to it. So when it comes to these ancestry and ancestral type of things, the one thing you have to understand is they don't use the same type of DNA processing that we use for, for crime uh, investigation that goes into the CODIS database. We use loci or DNA markers, we use you know, up to 20 of them. Uh, what these Ancestry uh, databases use is called SNPs, S-N-P, uh, and that's a different part of the genome, and that's, uh, that'll give you uh, a more uh, personal identification because they have a, a, an example would be uh, Parabon. They can, you can give this type of DNA to them, and they can tell you what color of eyes, you know, on a high percentage rate a person would have, what color of hair, if they have freckles, what color of skin, uh, facial structure. So that gets really more individualized. And so, therefore, the Ancestry databases, you know, um, they also use a more individualized. So um, that's done through, it's not like I can just take DNA from what I submitted to the state lab and take that profile and put it in. It, it, It can't happen that way. 
way. Mm-hmm. It has to be specifically through them. But I do believe that eventually, uh, because they're gearing us up that way, uh, it's going to be open up uh, to to uh, law enforcement. What's happened now is, for example, GEDmatch has put a little blue police vehicle up there on their site, and if you want to allow police to be able to uh, search your DNA, you can hit that icon, and then they will have access. Because what they're doing is they're they're putting uh, the DNA in there to uh, we don't know who committed this crime, but we have a sample, a DNA sample, and it'll tell you uh, the percentage of who that sample might match. And it might not be the individual; it could be a relative. Could be, uh, I believe on. I'm not sure, but I believe on the Golden State Killer, it, it matched up to uh, one of his uh, children, right. and so uh, they kind of deducted from that as to who it could possibly be. And it's really been beneficial to law enforcement. And uh, don't forget, law enforcement's been collecting DNA at jails, whether you're guilty or innocent, from when you get uh, booked in or not. So I think it's really going that way. I would, I would have to agree. So, and that leads me to my last question, um, Francine. What types of crimes? is DNA used to investigate, and where do you see the future going um, as it relates to the incorporation of DNA into everyday criminal investigations? Well, I'll tell you, DNA could be used almost on any type of crime. Um, our problem is uh, often is because the labs uh, uh, are so backlogged and it costs so much for private labs, we have to focus on the high-profile cases. You can use DNA. I've collected DNA from property crimes, uh, from residential burglaries, from uh, business burglaries. You can collect it from all sorts of crimes, but we have to focus on what's the most advantageous that we can we can afford. State labs will, a lot of state labs won't do property crimes right now. We focus on person crimes and how much, how much time can we afford, you know, uh, to put in and money on certain crimes. So we can collect DNA from just about anything. It's just a matter of our resources. That's absolutely amazing. I have to tell you, big, big kudos to, uh, to Chief Ken Valentine from uh, the West Jordan Police Department for creating the kind of environment where you've got somebody uh, with the expertise of Francine that's being able to work with police departments around the country. Francine, thank you so much for joining us and really looking forward to bringing you back on Security Matters as we launch, uh, which we will be launching our monthly cold case show, bringing you back with us and sharing some of your expertise. I look forward to it as well, Paul. Thank you. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll finish up for today. You're listening to Security Matters on CBS News Radio. Stay with me. Now, back to Security Matters with Paul Violas. Welcome back to Security Matters. I'm Paul Violas, and that was Francine Bardot, crime scene investigator and forensic specialist with the West Jordan City Police Department of West Jordan, Utah. One of the true gifts that we have in law enforcement today, and ladies and gentlemen, one of the great things, and for all of you that are listening, for people that are directly or indirectly affected by a cold case, the positive thing here is that cold cases are going to really start to escalate with respect to the manner uh, of which they're going to be solved by the use of DNA in people like Francine and the emergence of private labs like the Utah Cold Case Coalition. So really good, positive, strong information right there. Stuff for us to keep our eye on. Remember, if you have anything that you would like uh, us to cover, please do not hesitate for a second. Hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. You can email at info at Violas. You can send the information through CBS Audio. We'd love for you to leave a review, cbsaudio.com 
slash podcast. Let us know what you think. Hope you have a great week. Be safe. Be well. God bless. Thanks for listening to Security Matters with Paul Violas. The podcast is produced by Seth Nyman and CBS News Radio. For more podcasts from CBS News, visit cbsaudio.com slash podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sat from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts.